Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm Jonathan Strickland and today we're going to look at the Uber story. A story about the company Uber, not an Uber large epic story. Although I guess it's that too. Now this is going to be part one. I've already recorded part two peek behind the curtain, brought Scott Benjamin in for a little discussion about Uber, and uh, it ended up being so long that it had to be its own episode. I was originally just going to kind of tag it on to the end of this one, but uh, you can listen to the next episode to hear Scott's ideas about Uber and autonomous cars and a fleet of vehicles that take you places without any human drivers. But for this episode, I really wanted to look at the story of Uber itself, not its future, but its past and up to the present. So to look at how Uber came about, you have to go back to 2008. That's when a pair of entrepreneurs named Garrett Camp and Travis Kalanick began to talk about a way to make it easier to get a taxi in San Francisco. Worlds turn upon such thoughts, Bloom. So Camp was a co-founder of the web discovery platform StumbleUpon. So in case you've never used it, StumbleUpon is a web discovery tool. It lets users share web pages. You can rate them. And it also lets, lets you discover other web pages and photos and videos and other web-related content that your friends liked. Uh, it's sort of a curation engine. So the idea is that it helps you discover stuff related to your interests. So it's kind of like a search engine, but it's always on the lookout for things that you might find interesting. So kind of a baby step toward the semantic web, but it's largely dependent upon other people tagging that information. In May 2007, eBay bought StumbleUpon for $75 million. So in 2008, there's Camp sitting around thinking about what he's going to tackle next. He's still CEO of StumbleUpon, but you know he's also flush with cash. And by the way, he would go on to buy StumbleUpon back from eBay in 2009, along with a few other investors. Meanwhile, you've got Travis Kalanick, who had dropped out of the computer science program at UCLA to found a company called Scour Incorporated. That's S-C-O-U-R. And that was a multimedia search engine. He also created Scour Exchange, which was a peer-to-peer file sharing service. Uh, peer-to-peer file sharing, I'm sure you guys remember, but uh, this is a method of transferring large data files quickly by creating a network of peers, all of whom are either hosting part of or an entire file, large file, and they make that available to other peers in the network to download. So it speeds up the downloading process. And this is not necessarily a means to get illegal content like works that are protected under copyright. and In other words, it's not necessarily a way to pirate stuff, but it has been used to pirate things. And so a lot of people equate peer-to-peer networks with illegal activity. That's just not true. It's just a means of distribution. It's kind of like saying a road would be illegal because someone was driving something illegal in a car or that the car itself is illegal. That's ridiculous, obviously. However, it has meant that certain industry organizations like the MPAA and the RIAA have come down on these companies and threatened them with enormous lawsuits for allowing such things to happen. Uh, the DMCA says that 
it gives you know safe harbor to to companies that uh, host these services as long as those companies take pains to remove or prevent piracy from happening uh, and then they are they're protected but the RIAA and the NPAA and a couple of other organizations all filed lawsuits against Scour and so the company declared bankruptcy in September 1998 uh, in anticipation of those lawsuits coming at them and kind of dissolved Kalanick would then go on to start other companies uh, the next one was called Red Swoosh which was another peer-to-peer file exchange service, which was eventually uh, acquired by Akamai Technologies or Akamai Technologies in 2007 for $19 million. So both Kalnick and Camp were doing pretty well for themselves when they met up to talk about a way to leverage the Internet and mobile devices to make it easier to hail a cab, to get a taxi in San Francisco. And actually, in the very beginning... It was a bit more elitist than that, according to some reports anyway. The story is that Camp and Kalnick were in Paris for the Loeb conference, and the two began to mull over what a pain in the patookas it is to hail a cab in San Francisco, particularly when you're loaded down with luggage. So they started talking about collaborating on a particularly private venture. They began to wonder if it would make sense for them to go in together and purchase a Mercedes S-Class vehicle and hire a personal driver and get a parking spot in a garage that would be geographically equidistant to their individual houses. In other words, at first they were just talking about sharing a personal driver and a car. So kind of like an Uber just for the two of them. But this conversation evolved into the idea for a mobile app that would allow you to put in a request for a driver and a service of drivers capable of responding to such a call. So Camp would go on to work on that idea in his spare time, and he actually produced a prototype app in March 2009. At the time, he was calling it UberCab. Now, Camp actually hired Kalanick to become the full-time custodian of UberCab. So Camp was still being busy as the CEO of StumbleUpon, and it was Kalanick's job to take this initial prototype app and develop it until it could launch as a real service with the aim of launching it in San Francisco. In January 2010, the service was ready for a test run, and it was about as alpha as you can get. There were only three cars, and they started in the city of New York City. So three cars in New York City is a tiny test run of a service. In March 2010, Uber would hire Ryan Graves to become the general manager of the company. And this is a pretty funny story all on its own. Kalanick actually posted on Twitter that he was looking for a business developer. And he said that there would be big equity in a pre-launch product. So Ryan Graves responded to the tweet and sent a Twitter message of his own that said they should email him. And they and he gave his email address over Twitter. And I guess things worked out because they hired him. Now, Ryan Graves had been working at General Electric and had described his position there as being, quote unquote, unglamorous and not really any room for him to to advance in his job, uh, at least not that he could see. He had also served as an intern for Foursquare and apparently had kind of just wheedled his way into there, depending upon whose account you believe. And he would eventually become the CEO of Uber for a short while before Kalanick took over that position and Graves would become involved in the global development of the company. So his focus began to be um, really directed at getting Uber 
into various cities around the globe. But a very successful hire, and it's funny that it happened over Twitter. In July 2010, Uber would hit the streets of San Francisco. Uh, Uber Cab was being called an on-demand car service via the iPhone. There was no Android app at this point. And at this stage, the service already used the phone to determine your location and to send a driver to you, or you could use the map within the app service itself to indicate an exact pickup location that your driver would go to. Now, drivers in the area would be alerted to your request. So when a driver accepts your request, that request goes off the list. So that way you don't get multiple drivers all responding to the same request. The driver who accepted it then heads your way to pick you up and take you to your destination. And you can rate the driver. And the driver can also rate you, too. You can give a review, and the driver can review you. So users who have low ratings might find that they aren't getting rides as easily as other people. In other words, it pays to be nice to your driver, or at least not to be obnoxious and, and disruptive. In October 2010, UberCab received a $1.25 million in an investment round. And that's also when the company would drop the cab from its name and just become Uber. But the company also got a cease and desist order from the Public Utilities Commission of California. And the reason was because the organization accused Uber of acting as a cab company without the proper licensing to do so. In other words... Uber was performing a service that was identical to that of taxicabs, but not having to obey the same rules that taxicabs did. So for the time being, Uber had to be put out of commission in San Francisco. Uh, in November 2010, Uber becomes available for Android devices. And in February 2011, the company would receive $11 million from another round of investments. A few months later in May, Uber would go live in New York City. In September 2011, Uber landed itself in some hot water with journalists. It was revealed that Uber has a sort of overview of the entire system within a region, and some people were calling it the God View. It shows the names and locations of all the Uber users in that area. So remember, Uber is using the location data of your phone and then broadcasts that to Uber so that drivers can find you. But that also means that the system knows where you are when you are using the Uber app. So if you were able to access this view, you could see where all the Uber users are in that area. It was meant to be an internal tool, but they did start showing it off in a party at Chicago, and that really started off some trouble. Also, one Uber executive apparently sent a message to a journalist who requested an Uber ride. So because the Uber executive could see where the journalist was and how the journalist was active, the executive sent a message saying, hey, won't you write a story about Uber? So essentially they were using the God view to keep tabs on the journalist, and that kind of backfired. Uh, the, that seemed to be a, a violation of privacy. And since then, Uber has said that it has placed strict limits on who can view that particular data. So this is not something that people can easily see now, at least according to Uber. And Uber got another shot of investments in December 2011. They raised $37 million and also launched service in Seattle, Boston, Chicago, Washington, D.C., and Paris. So they launched service in the city where the idea for Uber was first born. In April of 2012, Uber launched UberX, 
And that's what allows people to become Uber drivers using their own personal vehicles at a lower rate than what you'd find with a taxi or with other Uber services that are using black cars or SUVs or other uh, upscale vehicles. The company also launched a feature in which you could use Uber to hail an official taxi cab in markets like Chicago. So in some markets, you can use Uber to get a regular cab uh, and uh, instead of an Uber driver. And in some markets, that actually makes sense. I'll talk more about that in a second. In November 2012, Uber caught some flack for its surge pricing, which had been an issue already. Uh, surge pricing was really Uber's way, and still is Uber's way, of managing the balance between supply and demand. So if demand is really high, surge pricing kicks in, and the price for Uber services goes up as well, at least until the supply ends up coming closer to the demand. In other words, if the demand is really high and surge pricing goes up, other Uber drivers might end up entering that area uh, in order to take advantage of that surge pricing because Uber drivers make more if the prices are higher. But as supply ends up meeting the same as demand, then the prices come down. It's very much reactive to that. Well, during emergency situations, the demand can be very high and supply can be very low, and that can end up creating a difficult and sometimes, uh, well, certainly discriminatory pricing uh, in, in the wake of pretty awful situations. Uh, one of those being when Hurricane Sandy hit New York. It was a very severe uh, weather pattern that moved through and hit New York much harder than anyone had anticipated. And as a result, surge prices went way up in New York after Sandy was moving through. Now, Uber responded by waiving the surge pricing for rides in the wake of Sandy, and they also let drivers take home the entire fare. Now, Uber usually takes a commission off of fares. Uh, typically, in the early days, it was something like 20%, meaning the driver would have 80% of what they made that day, and the other 20% would go to Uber. That has actually changed over time, and I'll get to that in a little bit. Around that same time in 2012, late 2012, uh, Uber was fined $20,000 by the California Public Utilities Commission, CPUC, in other words, for operating an unlicensed taxi and limousine dispatch service. Those fines would never be collected upon because Uber and the commission would strike a deal in early 2013, allowing Uber to operate in California in return for following certain regulations. In the summer of 2013, the rival service Lyft was starting to get in some serious traction. They were really starting to take off. Uh, Lyft had been around since 2012, and Uber had also had to face a battle on many fronts as various cities and regions began to react to its business model and you know, protest it moving into those markets. The company at that time was valued at $3.7 billion with a B dollars. In September 2013, California would become the first state to regulate what is called ride-sharing services. Here's where I take a moment to say I don't like the idea of calling these ride-sharing services. I think of ride-sharing services as a means to allow people to carpool, in other words. So if I'm going to a concert, maybe, and I say, hey, I'm going to this concert, I've got a car, it seats about 20, so come along and bring your jukebox money. People can put in an app saying, hey, I'm also going to that concert. Can you pick me up? And if it's on my way, I can do that. I think of that as ride sharing. You are literally sharing a ride. 
Whereas with UberX, you are using your own personal vehicle. If you're an UberX driver, you're using your own car to drive people around. That's not really ride sharing. It's still kind of more like hailing a cab. It's just in this case, it's not a cab. It's someone's personal car. But it's not ride sharing, I would argue. In fact, I think this whole share-based economy is a misnomer. But that's an episode for another time. At any rate, California passes rules in 2013 in September that require Uber drivers and other drivers, uh, drivers of other services that are similar to Uber to undergo a criminal background check. They have to pass a training program. They have to obtain a, a permit from the CPUC before driving for any of those companies. And the companies themselves have to offer insurance coverage of the vehicles. And that put Uber closer to the level of taxi service. And in addition, the CPUC demands one-third of 1% of the total revenues as fees. Uh, the various car service companies saw this as a victory, the uh, ability to have uh, uh, a legitimate claim to operating in those environments. Now, the following month, Uber made a deal with a few auto manufacturers like Toyota and GM and also with auto financing companies to make it easier for prospective Uber drivers to get favorable financing rates on vehicles when purchasing a car. So this was a strategic move on Uber's part to attract more drivers to work with the service because they were seeing escalating demand in various markets, and that meant that surge pricing was hitting all the time because there weren't enough drivers to meet that demand. And that meant that the people who were asking for rides were getting these crazy surge prices uh, tacked on, and they didn't like that. They didn't want to take the the they didn't want to use the service because why use a service that's so much more expensive than just taking a cab? So there was a real incentive on Uber's part to get more drivers into these markets in order to meet the demand that was already there. So they ended up making these partnerships. And uh, Kalanick said that a fully utilized vehicle on Uber would gross more than $100,000 per year. Uh, later estimations had it at a lower rate. But at this time, he said about $100,000 per year if it was, quote unquote, fully utilized. What that means, I don't know. I imagine at least 40 hours a week. But using that information and coming from Kalanick himself, uh, the car financing companies and the car manufacturers were able to leverage and or, or able to look at better deals for prospective Uber drivers. So if you wanted to drive for Uber and you went forward uh, trying to purchase a car this way, you would actually get really favorable rates. And Kalanick estimated that the preferential rates would actually result in 100 to $200 in savings on car payments per month. So having less to pay was a big incentive if you were already thinking about driving. And keeping in mind that these UberX drivers are using their own vehicles, they have to purchase those vehicles and maintain those vehicles. So this was a, a, a necessary incentive. In March 2014, Uber announced an insurance plan that would cover drivers when there are no passengers in the car, and this would be an extension of personal coverage that drivers were already required to have in order to be an UberX driver. So this was to kind of add a little more protection to those drivers. This, this was in the wake of some pretty tragic circumstances where an Uber driver uh, struck and killed a, a pedestrian. A uh, very tragic story. Uh, but Uber had maintained that the 
the incident when it happened, the Uber driver was not carrying a fare, nor was the Uber driver responding to a fare request at that exact moment. In May 2014, Travis Kalanick spoke at the Code Conference and revealed Uber's long-term plan is to switch to autonomous vehicles, which would mean they would replace human drivers. The cars would drive themselves. He talked about a future in which car ownership would be increasingly rare, particularly for dense urban environments. And in those places, instead of owning a car, you just call for a car whenever you needed one, and it would arrive within 30 seconds and then take you to where you're, you needed to be efficiently and safely. And you wouldn't need a space for your own car, because you, why would you ever own one? You, you could have that space set aside for something else. And cars usually sit idle like 90% of the time. You, you aren't in your car that frequently in the grand scheme of things. So why would you pay for something that you only use 10% of the time you own it and you have to pay for the place to keep it, especially if you're in a, living in a place like New York City where the payment for a car parking spot might be the same as an apartment in other parts of the world. So it's a pretty powerful argument. Uh, it also suggests that Uber's not terribly concerned with what their drivers think of the the company in the long term. But the public image of Uber has been something of a problem area for its entire existence. Anyway, this only makes sense, obviously, if the amount you would spend on car rides through the service would be less than what you would spend on the ownership and maintenance of a vehicle. So uh, I guess in the very long run, if you were to keep a car for a very, very long time, then you could argue that the personal car ownership makes more sense because you are getting the most out of that vehicle. But that's less common today than it was 20 years ago. So I don't know that you can make that argument as effectively today. At any rate, Kalanick says that the real reality of such a day is quite a long ways off. But it is inevitable. We will get there. And this address that he gave at the code conference came not long after Uber had released a report that claimed Uber drivers would make much more money than cab drivers would. Now, according to that report, a cab driver's salary was around the $30,000 per year mark. And Uber said the median wage for a New York-based UberX driver who works at least 40 hours per week is $90,766 per year. In San Francisco, it was $74,191 per year. So obviously, the amount you make was re- relied heavily upon where you actually work. And that doesn't factor into account the expenses that a driver would incur in owning and operating and maintaining that vehicle. So those those figures don't indicate like how much did the car cost? How much did it cost to fuel the vehicle or park the vehicle when you weren't using it or just take it in for tune-ups? None of that is factored into that that revenue. So keep that in mind too. In June 2014, Uber announced another round of funding, and that time it was truly huge, as in $1.2 billion. And at that point, the company was valued at $17 billion. So definitely on a stratospheric rise, and we're not done yet. In August 2014, that's when we had the uh, the publication of all the stories of the great Uber versus Lyft war. So during August, we started seeing lots of reports of one side accusing the other of shenanigans. Uh, most of the accusations were from Lyft against Uber 
and had the added oomph of internal memos to support the allegations. Lyft executives accused Uber of running a campaign designed to sabotage Lyft's operations. So the accusation said that Uber drivers had been using Lyft to call for rides and then to cancel them, which would tie up drivers and make them frustrated as they failed to get fares. At the same time, Uber was accused of beginning a campaign to lure Lyft drivers away from Lyft to work for Uber instead. Now, Uber claims that Lyft drivers were also calling and canceling rides and in greater numbers than the other way around. And the fight got really super ugly. And it's not exactly done yet, but boy, that was some nasty press that came out at, during that time. Also in August, Uber hired David Plouffe, uh, and I'm probably butchering his last name, but as a lobbyist to help push for favorable changes in regulations and laws that could give Uber a place in the market. He had formerly been a campaign manager for President Obama, so was very well versed in the world of politics. In November 2014, Emil Michaels, who was a senior vice president, still is at Uber, suggested uh, digging up dirt on journalists who publish stories that are critical of Uber. In other words, he seemed to suggest using blackmail to silence critics. And Kalanick would eventually apologize for Michael's remarks, but he wasn't fired or demoted as a result of them, which made a lot of people really angry. By the end of 2014, Uber was valued at $40 billion, so twice as much from the previous year. Uber is also banned in Spain and Thailand, uh, the reason given that the service is unfair to other businesses, uh, the taxi business, in other words. And Holland would ban Uber Pop, which is the uh, the European version of UberX. But Holland would continue to allow other versions of Uber to operate within the country. Uh, Portland, Oregon sued to shut down Uber when it launched there, because of course it did. In December of 2014, an Uber driver was charged with kidnapping and raping an Uber customer, which absolutely horrifying story. And this isn't the only instance of an Uber employee being accused of something so heinous as as rape. It's unfortunately happened a few times. At least the charges have been levied a few times. Um, a Florida Driver was charged with assaulting a female passenger. Uh, there were a couple of instances in Chicago, one in which an UberX driver was accused of sexually assaulting a female passenger, and a different UberX driver in Chicago was charged with sexual assault um, in, in January of 2015 for attacking a male passenger. Uh, also in January 2015, a criminal trial began for an Uber driver in India who was accused of rape. And in February 2015, a Boston driver was charged with indecent assault and battery. So partially as a response to the driver assaults on passengers, Uber instituted a measure that was found uh, originally in the Indian version of its app. Uh, this was a panic button that they, they uh, enacted in Chicago. That panic button alerts police if the rider feels threatened while inside the vehicle. They also announced that they were going to institute much more um, strict criminal background checks before hiring on any drivers. So this has been an incredibly negative story, obviously, for obvious reasons. You, you never want to have a company that's a service-oriented company putting customers at risk, clearly. And uh, Uber has been 
you know, responsive to it, but there have been a lot of critics who said that the company has not done enough, nor has it done it quickly enough, nor has it been responsible because this should never have happened in the first place. Uh, so again, Uber's public image is taking a beating. <laughs> it wouldn't be the last time. In February 2015, Uber revealed that a hacker had gained access to its database in some time uh, in 2014. But it was waiting until uh, 2015 to reveal this information, really as part of the investigation that the company needed to be quiet. The database contained the names and driver's license numbers of around 50,000 Uber drivers. So potentially the hacker got access to all of that information. Of course, they don't really know, or at least they haven't released all the info that the hacker did access, but it's potentially that much. In April of 2015, researchers at the University of Cambridge and the University of Namur, which is in uh, uh, Belgium, I believe, combined, uh, they combed through mountains of data from 2014 to compare the cost of trips taken in New York City on UberX and compare that to trips in traditional yellow cabs. So they wanted to see, do you actually save money by taking UberX? And guess what? You don't necessarily. They found that taxis were actually, on average, $1.40 cheaper than UberX trips as long as the overall price was $35 or less, meaning that it was a relatively short cab trip. They found that on longer trips, where the full price would be $35 or more, or rather more than $35, the Uber cars became more competitive. Uh, it's just on the short trips, cabs were, on the whole, cheaper. Then again, you don't tip Uber drivers, but it is customary to tip cab drivers. So it could be that once you factor in the tip, the difference in price is, is negligible. Uh, in fact, a lot of the, the scenarios I saw ended up having the overall price of a cab trip be maybe 50 cents more than an Uber trip. So it's, it may be that it doesn't really make a grand difference in the, in, in the big picture. Now that discovery, actually led to the development of another app called Open Street Cab, which lets you compare the estimated rates of any particular trip between a cab and UberX. And the goal would be to build an app that automatically recommends which service you use on any given trip. So in other words, you would open up this app, tell you tell the app where you wanted to be picked up, where you were going, and then it would estimate how much you would spend on either service, keeping in mind Uber's algorithmic surge pricing. Uh, obviously, during a... T- High surge price, it would be much cheaper to take a cab because cabs don't have surge prices. In June 2015, Parisian taxi drivers began to protest, and they were violent about it. I mean, there was some violent protesting in the streets of Paris, and it was all about Uberpop, again, that equi- that European equivalent of UberX. Part of this reason wa- uh, was that the taxi drivers in Paris work in a highly regulated business, and the Uber drivers aren't subjected to the same restrictions that the taxi drivers are, which creates what the taxi drivers see as an unfair market. I've seen some common, uh, some folks comment on this saying that the problem is that taxis are an outdated form of business. They are based upon regulations that no longer really are applicable. And the real issue here is that you're looking at an outmoded form of business and and comparing it to the new emerging business as opposed to the new emerging business needs to adhere to the rules of the old business. But whatever your perspective is, there was clearly a disagreement here. 
And in July 2015, Steve Yerviston, who is a member of the board for the company Tesla, said that Kalanick had made a pretty bold statement and had said that if Tesla could build a fully functional electric autonomous car by 2020, Uber would purchase half a million of them. Now, that would be every single vehicle Tesla would make in that year, because that's about how many cars Tesla makes in a year is half a million. So essentially, Kalanick was saying, if you can make an electric autonomous vehicle in 2020, I will buy every single one of them. Now, that would be incredibly transformative. It would impact taxi drivers and Uber drivers alike, because according to one study, if you had 9,000 electric autonomous vehicles, you could replace all of the yellow cabs in New York City. Uh, that's about 13,500 medallions. Medallions are the uh, essentially the authorization to operate a vehicle as a cab. Uh, now, that's in Manhattan, really, mostly lower Manhattan. But those 9,000 vehicles would replace 13,500 vehicles. So you would remove more than uh, 4,000 vehicles from the roads, from the streets of Manhattan. So traffic would decrease because of that. Uh, the arguably you would have a much safer environment because electric uh, autonomous vehicles would be able to respond much more quickly than human operated vehicles. There are a lot of benefits to this. So let's say that Uber bought 500,000 electric autonomous vehicles. Imagine how many different regions they could impact with that. If 9,000 would be enough to affect Manhattan, keep in mind, the yellow cabs of Manhattan carry about 485,000 fares in an average day. Just imagine transforming all the different markets out there. With 500,000 of these cars, you could make a huge impact across the entire United States. Assuming, of course, that it was legal to operate autonomous vehicles as taxis in those states. It would also mean that Uber would be making way more money for the company itself because it would be taking, it would take a hundred percent of the fares as opposed to, uh, 20 to 30 percent. Now here's some other points about cabs versus Uber in New York City. Slate had a piece about Uber in New York and talked about how it didn't matter that there are more Uber drivers in New York City than there are cab drivers. That was one of those stories that was capturing a lot of attention because, you know, people were using that as an argument to say this new disruptive business is threatening this older business that has been established and regulated over the past several decades. Slate pointed out that this there was a huge disparity in the number of trips between uh, yellow cabs and Uber. So even though there are more Uber drivers in New York City than there are cab drivers, the cab drivers are taking way more of the fares. Again, 485,000 on average per day. Uber is closer to 34,000. They also say, well, you know, there's this argument about how you could make a really good salary as an Uber driver in New York. All you have to do is work 40 or more hours a week. It turns out that nearly all the drivers in New York who are Uber drivers are driving significantly fewer hours than that. 42% of New York's Uber drivers work between 1 and 15 hours per week. And another 35% are driving between 16 and 34 hours. So the vast majority are driving fewer than 40 hours per week. They're not making that $90,000 that was quoted earlier. Um, 
in, in other words, most of them are working as Uber drivers as a part-time job, not a full-time gig. And of course, there's some other issues. Uber's come under fire from multiple fronts. Uh, there are the commissions and unions that represent existing businesses that oppose Uber for various reasons, from charges of unfair competition to pointing out that Uber needs to fall under the same rules as other services that are in that space. There are also problems that Uber has experienced with instances of drivers engaged in criminal and violent behavior. I mean, obviously, that is a huge issue. And there are the criticisms about how Uber isn't responding to calls to increase accessibility for people who suffer from disabilities. So folks who have uh, like, you know, like people who are bound to wheelchairs, they're having a harder time finding uh, Uber drivers that have vehicles equipped to handle that. So ideally in the future, Uber would have it built into the app so that you could request this from the very beginning and still have very fast response times. Obviously, that's going to take a lot of time, especially when you factor in Uber X, which Require you know has people driving their own personal vehicles. Uh, there's an incentive for them to have a vehicle that could accommodate someone who's in a wheelchair, but that's not inexpensive, and it's not necessarily practical for all people who want to drive Uber X. So that's a real problem. I mean, that accessibility is a very big issue that needs to be answered. I mean, obviously, you would not want to switch to Uber uh, and and have that be your only means of of mass transit for a given region if they weren't also accessible for all people. There's also an ongoing public image problem of how much the fare, how much of the fare the company takes versus how much goes to drivers. Uh, it was a big deal when Uber moved from 20% to 25% in San Francisco. They used San Francisco as kind of a testing grounds for that. And that was, that was huge. Then in May 2015, Uber announced it would experiment with a tiered approach as a commission for fares. So in other words, it would be a 30% take for the first 20 rides in a week. The company would take 30% of the fares, and the driver would take home the other 70%. They're paid uh, weekly, by the way. Then after the first 20 rides, it would dip down to 25% commission for the next 20 rides. So from 21 to 40, the company would take 25% of the fare. Then after that, it would drop to 20% for all rides until the end of the week. And keep in mind that standard used to be 20% for UberX drivers across the board, whether it was the first trip or the 41st trip. Then there's the surge pricing. This is one of those things that definitely has received a lot of press, particularly in instances where people have been charged huge amounts of money because the surge pricing was enormous, like 20 times what the normal rate would be. So surge pricing kicks in during times of high demand. The higher prices encourage or are supposed to encourage more Uber drivers to hit the streets. So that way the supply begins to catch up with the demand. As long as the supply is meeting the demand, surge pricing isn't an issue. It's when you have a lot of people asking for rides in a particular part of town and there aren't enough drivers. That's when surge pricing kicks in. Uh, but a Washington Post article written by Nicholas Diacopoulos postulates that surge pricing really all it does is redistribute the concentration of drivers in an area. It doesn't really create an incentive for more drivers to go active. Uh, now, it does decrease demand because fewer people are willing to pay a high price for cars. So if you if you realize that there's a, a, a multiplier put on there, and by the way, the app does tell you, 
Uh, there have been many times where I've looked at the the surge pricing. It would be 4.5 times the regular price. No, it's not worth that to me. You can actually tell in the app, hey, alert me when surge prices come to an end, when it's back to its normal amount. Uh, but that, that shows that surge pricing can decrease demand. So that can space out how many people need to use or want to use the service in a given area in a given time. And as that demand decreases, the surge pricing decreases as well. So you can actually see this price fluctuate quite a bit within a pretty crowded area. Uh, surge prices place a multiplier on the base cost of a trip. And that might, so a, a trip that might cost $10 on an average day could end up being $50 or more in a heavy demand uh, time frame. And there are a lot of horror stories out there about people who didn't realize that they were arranging a ride at peak demand and were charged enormous amounts for that ride. Uh, again, if you pay attention, you can pretty much tell what's going to happen, but it does require you to pay attention. Usually you can just wait a few minutes and the pricing will adjust, but that volatility does mean there's not a big incentive for more drivers to hit the roads. This is why we usually see it as a means of redistributing the the concentration of drivers in an area rather than increasing an influx of new drivers. Like if you are an UberX driver and you see a message that surge pricing is in effect and you think, oh, I could make some money. By the time you get to your car, start it up, hit the road and go to pick up your first fare, that surge pricing may be over because it's so volatile. It changes so quickly. So it can't really be an incentive to get more people on the streets. Well, guys, that kind of wraps up the Uber story so far. I mean, there's a lot more to cover, including this idea of a fleet of robocars taking you wherever you want to go. But in order to cover that, I asked Scott Benjamin to join me. So in our next episode, you'll hear Scott and I talk about this idea and the pros and cons and what Scott thinks about a world in which we may not have human-operated vehicles anymore. It's so much fun to break that news to him. Anyway, you need to tune in for the next episode to hear that. In the meantime, if you have any suggestions for future topics that I can tackle here on Tech Stuff, you should write me. My email address is techstuff at howstuffworks.com or drop me a message on Twitter or Facebook. The handle is techstuffhsw, and I'll talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 